Walter Balfour and the team of Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the radio voice of the Texas Baseball Rangers, Eric Nadell, broadcaster for the Rangers uh, for 30-plus years now. Nadell was the recipient of the 2014 Ford Frick Award and probably uh, more notably was ranked third uh, out of all 30 radio broadcast teams a couple years ago by the readers of Fangraphs. And what follows, uh, we discuss the art and science of Nadell's craft of broadcasting, the terrors of foreign language acquisition, and Nadell also reveals what a broadcaster's nightmares are like. Sometimes <laughs> at night, in the middle of the night, I hear myself doing a broadcast. It's like horrible. Fangraphs audio features the radio voice of the Texas Rangers, Eric Nadell, and it begins right now. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, okay, well, that's great. Oh, that's excellent. Then. That's a great place to start. Uh, so a couple years at the site, I did uh, – I facilitated essentially like a crowdsourcing project, right, so that um, our viewers could sort of weigh in on uh, broadcasters. And the idea was not to say, like, here are the absolute best, here are the absolute worst broadcasters. The idea was to – because of, like, the access that – baseball fans now have to mm-hmm. MLB.TV and right. radio. There are a lot more options. And I found myself not necessarily being that familiar, and I assumed that this was a similar circumstance for our, our readers. So I said, um, let's look at, like, you know, um, who's just uh, – who's most charismatic, uh, who's, you know, who uh, employs analysis, and who's just, you know, overall the best for this particular subset of readers. And uh, – uh, you and then your and your partner at the time, Steve Busby, right. uh, came out. Uh, you were acquitted very well. I think it was something like third overall. And one of the people ahead of you was Bob Uecker, and that's not even really fair to, co- to compete <laughs> against Bob Uecker. Um, uh, but I guess so. I guess my first question is, what do you think it is that you're doing, or what is it necessarily maybe that you value um, that would resonate with the sort of person who comes to Fangraphs, which might be someone who is interested in a certain level of precision or a certain level of uh, thoughtfulness that goes into the game commentary? I think it's a combination of all the things that you try to do. Mm-hmm. You know, the first thing you're trying to do is inform. And now with so much information available to us, yeah. one of the biggest challenges is what's really interesting right. in terms of the background information that you use. Uh, what are you going to tell them about what this pitcher does, for example? How much are you going to get into detail about any advanced stats, which we use very um, sporadically Mm -hmm. because I don't want to have to explain it to everybody all the time. But still, the more relevant information that you have, I think the more interesting a broadcast is. Still, the most important thing we have to do is the game. We have to describe the game. On TV, they don't. On TV, all they have to do is analyze it. On radio, we have to describe and analyze it. Um, My... My uh, three three point credo for broadcasting is observe, uh-huh. describe, react. Okay. And reaction is sometimes just an emotional reaction, but sometimes it's reacting based on analysis, based on some statistical information that might be relevant or interesting. But my whole thing is what's interesting, uh-huh. what and what's fun to listen to, what's entertaining, uh-huh. and I think that's the thing that separates the announcers who are perceived as great announcers with the other ones, is their their personalities, right. their connections with the audience are what makes them seem to be 
you know, the icon of the community or the guy you grew up with or all that, that kind of stuff. There's usually personality involved when I think of the guys who've, you know, the guys who've won the Frick Award and the guys who were thought of as, you know, the longtime voices of their teams. There has to be a connection, a personal connection. Right. So to that point, I grew up in, in the Boston area, and I listened to a lot of Joe Castiglione. Um, and for me, that's just – that's like, it's almost like that's a fact. That's like the soundtrack of summer, essentially, is having that on in the background. And I assume that to, to some degree this is what you're talking about, is to just have a, a voice because it, it's it's also what's going on the field, but it's also, you know, you're on for three hours mm-hmm. most nights, and that's a big chunk of time. The <laughs> listeners have to like you yeah, or right. they're going to turn you off. <laughs> right. You know, they have to have this feeling, this is a good guy. Yeah. You know, this is a guy I'd like to spend three hours with at the ballpark or on my boat or in my car or at my job, whatever it is. So to, to partly to that point, um, I host a podcast for Fangraphs, and um, – I find that this might just have to do with me, uh, but I sometimes I cannot tolerate my own voice, and not just like not <laughs> not like no, not like the sound of it, because I because I don't. I'm sure a lot of people don't particularly care for that, but also just the things that I say and how I say them. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have any advice, uh, be for me, uh, and more generally speak to how for you th- that sort of challenge of. Of keeping a narrative going for three hours and not having inside of me like, oh, what am I talking about right now? Is it- well, you have to. You just have to be easier on yourself. <laughs> you, you just can't be hypercritical. If you're going to talk for three hours, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to say some things that didn't come out the way you want them to. You're going to say some stuff that's downright stupid. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons I've always thought that TV is harder to do than radio because on radio we're mostly describing things. Right. On TV, they're mostly just winging it. You know, when they're not reading commercials, right. they're just observing and reacting. Yeah. They're not describing. Right. They're more likely to say stupid stuff than we are. <laughs> but you're going to say stupid stuff. As far as, you know, I'm sick of my own bull, too. You know, <laughs> sometimes at night, in the middle of the night, I hear myself doing a broadcast. It's like horrible. You know? <laughs> oh, no. I don't, I don't, don't want to hear that. You know, I've, I hear enough of myself. Yeah. But I think anybody who talks a lot for a living probably has that same thing. I don't want to go back and listen to my own broadcast to critique myself. I do it sometimes because you have to do it right. to – keep from falling into saying the same phrase too often or, you know, some other things, some other bad habits you get into. But I hate doing it. I, I'm my worst critic, and most people are. Right. Now, I know that um, you've been doing um, – announcing at least since college, I mm-hmm. believe, right? And perhaps right. perhaps before that, but you were at Brown. Right. And you did hockey games, I think? Hockey and football. Hockey and football. So that's – that's so this is something that you've been doing for a while, honing your craft, but it also tells me that it's something that has appealed to you for a while. And I'm curious what were maybe certain of your early influences from announcing that have perhaps – that had perhaps informed you then and uh, wanted to get involved and also maybe um, defined your aesthetic as a – and also your sort of guiding philosophy as as an Well, I grew up in Brooklyn. I probably heard Vin Scully in the womb, although I don't remember (laughs) Uh hearing Vin Scully. I do remember going to Abbott's Field, but the first games I remember listening to were Yankee games with Mel Allen and Red Barber. And I thought those guys were my friends. (laughs) Red Barber would sign on. He'd say, hi, friends, Red Barber here. Uh-huh. And Melon would say, hello there, everybody. And he'd be there smoking uh, camels and <laughs> drinking Ballantine beer. And and uh, I thought those guys were my buddies. I was in the car one day with my dad. We were seven. I was seven, maybe eight years old. My dad was a dentist. Mm-hmm. And I remember we stopped at a traffic light in his convertible. Mm-hmm. I asked if Mel Allen was getting paid. <laughs> he said, yeah, that's his job. I said, wait a second. You go and you pull... 
pull teeth and fill yeah. cavities, and he goes to Yankee Stadium and watches the Yankees. Yeah, that's play. a little bit rough on your dad. I, I said, I think I like his deal better than yours. <laughs> From that time on, I've wanted to do this. Yeah. It's incredible, yeah. you know. And here I am doing it. Some fifty some odd years later, I'm actually doing it. It's right. outrageous. No, I didn't realize that about Red Barber. He had like a. Where was he from originally that he would have a southern twang? He was from uh, Florida, I think. And then he ended up in a Yankees broadcast, which is funny. Brooklyn, yeah. Brooklyn and Yankees. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's crazy. That's funny. Now, I know that um, – and here's one other question, too, with regard to the sort of art and science of broadcasting is uh, a picturing an audience, right? And this is something that uh, journalists have to do, novelists have to do. You have to pretend, and you probably have good reason to know that – People are on the other end. So I guess one of my questions is, who do you imagine being on the other end? Is there a – do you coax up an image, and has that image changed? Uh, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, the original the original audience member <laughs> that I think of is the kid with the transistor radio under his pillow, because that was me. Right, right. Going to sleep every night while Maris and Mantle were – going after Ruth's record with a transistor radio under my pillow. And then later when the Mets started playing, right. you know, listening to those games too, and I get put to bed listening to those games. Um, but now I've met so many people who listen to Ranger games through speaking engagements, and now, of course, you're getting emails and, you know, tweets and stuff from people. There's all kinds of ways for people to reach me now. Right. You know, I know it's a broad audience, and I'm not really thinking of any – one person, but for many years, it was the kid with the transistor radio. Now, I guess he'd have his iPhone under his pillow, not, not a transistor radio. Now, in terms of uh, reaching people and having an audience, I know that um, one step you took, I think this must be around 20 years ago now, was uh, you learned Spanish. Right, 1990. That, yeah, that, and I that's a fact. You, yeah. So, um, for, for reasons that are too boring to explain, I actually spent the winter uh, with my wife in Paris, France. And so, and I arrived speaking very little, uh, well, no, no Spanish either. It wouldn't help you in Paris, but I also arrived speaking very little French. I'm still pretty terrible at it. Um, but what it has acquainted me with is the, is the agonies of language acquisition as an adult in particular. Mm-hmm. And I know that it could be difficult. I also know that if you don't really have to do it, that it could be even more difficult. And so I'm curious as to what that experience was like for you going through that because it's hard it's, it can be very frustrating to learn a second language and unless you're you know living in the middle of Barcelona maybe or you know Mexico City you could be like well I could just slip into English and it'll be okay it was and continues to be the biggest challenge of my life mm-hmm. and it's the thing of which I'm the most proud right. I think in in all of the things I've done in broadcast we had Ruben Sierra come to the big leagues in the late 80s, and he did not speak English. And he was by far the best player on the Rangers. I wanted to talk to him almost every day. In order to talk to him, I had to get somebody to translate. Usually it was Jose Guzman, one of our pitchers, who was kind enough and patient enough to do it. I decided then I would start learning Spanish because we knew we had a new wave coming. We knew Juan Gonzalez was on the way. Pedro Rodriguez was on the way. The Rangers were really active in Latin America right. back then. We knew they were just going to keep coming. So it took me a few years. In 1990, there was a work stoppage at the start of spring training. So instead of being in spring training broadcasting games, I was sitting at home doing nothing. And I forced myself at that point to start learning Spanish. I went and got some tapes from the library, and I started taking some private lessons. Then the season started. I continued with the tapes. And when the season was over, I went back to the language school a couple of days a week for private lessons. And then... 
I think the following year I started going to Latin America. I've gone to Latin America every year since then for at least two weeks in the off-season to have a total immersion experience. Mm. I don't have a knack for languages. <laughs> I took French for five years in school. Mm-hmm. And I did okay because it was written French and, you know, written exams. Right. I never really spoke it well. I didn't understand it well. And every Spanish word I've learned has pushed a French word out of my head. So that <laughs> now, conservation that I'm, of now I'm semi-fluent in Spanish, I know no French <laughs> other than the little portions of dialogues. I can, I uh-huh. can ask where the library is, but right. not much else. Mm-hmm. But, it's tremendously helpful, tremendously gratifying when these kids come to the big leagues who can't speak any English for me to go down there, talk to them in Spanish, tell them I've been to their country, yeah. talk to them a little bit about that. They trust me. And it's really great to see their English grow to the point where it makes more sense for us to have a conversation in English rather than Spanish. Although I continue to always ask the questions in Spanish because it's a way for me to practice. Right, right. But they're, when they start answering in English... Um, it's it's very um, very rewarding for me. I assume that the the, the Spanish uh, th- this came up um, on the podcast I had on um, the one of the directors of Pelotero, uh, the great documentary about uh, Miguel Sano, etc. And um, I asked him about the Spanish limitations working in the Dominican Republic. He knew some Spanish, but I would even assume the tapes you get from the library going to the Dominican or going to Puerto Rico, you're going to get a different brand of Spanish anyway. Oh, yeah. They're certainly not pronouncing things in the Caribbean the way they (laughs) pronounce them on those tapes. That's the hardest thing for me is recognizing what the words are. If I can recognize the word, I may very well know the meaning of it. But if they're going to leave off the S at the end of the word, Uh and maybe the S in the middle of the word, too, (laughs) you know, I've got to fill in too many blanks. You know, it's dialing for dollars, and I'm I'm lost. (laughs) So that's that's a major, major challenge. Another thing, when I went to language school in Venezuela, uh, I learned that having been speaking to ballplayers, most of my Spanish uh, conversations, I was mispronouncing everything the way they did. I was dropping my S's and making other faux pas that my professor wouldn't put up with. Right. But although know, she th- those wanted are... more classic Spanish that everybody could understand. Right. But it, so that's an interesting thing, right? Because at the same time, um, sort of those quote unquote mispronunciations will obviously have more cachet with a player who's talking exactly. like that. Exactly. If I'm pronouncing all my S's, I sound like some kind of. Uh, academic, rather than somebody who's actually been down there talking Spanish in the Dominican or Cuba or Venezuela. You know, there is certain uh, research which suggests that, um, so far as team chemistry is concerned, that clubs might benefit in that regard from having um, a player who's either a star or a veteran, a respected veteran, who's bilingual. Um, it's certainly it's happened with uh, the Red Sox, for example, with a player like David Ortiz, Mike Lowell, and uh, Pedro Martinez have all been, I think, good at sort of uh, galvanizing a clubhouse. And I'm curious if, if because um, you've been around the Rangers for a while, they've obviously had important Latin players like you're talking about. I'm curious if that's something you've observed or not. I think it helps. Mm-hmm. I think it helps to not have the separate cliques in the clubhouse. And if you have guys who are, are able to bridge the two. And Michael's the perfect example. Michael's mother is Mexican. And he was the perfect guy to make sure that that didn't happen in the Ranger Clubhouse. Now it's Elvis. Uh, Beltre speaks perfect English now. So he's another guy. The Rangers have been, have been lucky that way. But when those first Ranger Puerto Rican players came to the big leagues, Juan and Pudge and Sierra, 
it was a little more segregated within the clubhouse than it is now. I also think Ron Washington does a really good job of making sure that that kind of stuff doesn't happen, you know, in right. his clubhouse. Right. And the Rangers do a good job in their selection of players to make sure. The Rangers have incorporated, you know, Japanese player in, in Darvish and Uehara, and now Chu is there. And, uh, you know, it's never really been an issue in the Ranger Clubhouse. Uh, and last question, because um, you have a, a real job to do. The uh, You mentioned both um, Andrus and Beltre. Um, I know as someone who, you know, covers baseball generally and will watch Rangers game occasionally, uh, that these guys appear to have a special relationship. Um, and I know that Adrian Beltre appears to be one of um, the more amusing players to annoy. Uh, because of this sort of the head inter- thing, yeah, yeah, the head yeah. thing, and also Andrus is always able to, when, when Beltre is trying to catch a pop up, Andrus will like a fly almost to get in the way. So I'm curious, what has been the sort of arc? And you, you know, you've been with the team now, certainly during both their careers or their stays with the club. What has been their sort of the arc of that friendship, and how would you characterize it? It's almost a brotherly thing to me. Where Elvis is like the the pesky younger brother, uh-huh. and Beltre just you know loves the heck out of him, uh-huh. but. He loves tormenting him and vice versa. Right. So that on a, on a pop-up, we have learned in calling pop-ups, you have no idea which one of them is going to catch it until it's actually in one of their gloves. Uh-huh. The guy who's seemingly calling it may not be the guy who catches it. We follow it all the way into the glove. But even that sort of thing, they have so much fun. Yeah. It's one of the joys for me in broadcasting over the last few years has been watching Beltre and watching Elvis. Uh, not only the way they interact, but both of them come to the ballpark every day with a tremendous sense of joy in their jobs. And it's something I try and do. You know, when I get when I get um, tapes and CDs from minor league announcers and they ask me to critique their tapes, invariably the first thing I say is, I don't hear any joy in your voice. It doesn't sound like you're having a great time. It doesn't sound like there's no place in the world you'd rather be. This is something I learned from the Mets announcers. I listen to the Mets probably almost every game when they lost 120 games in 1962, and Bob Murphy and Lindsey Nelson were happy to be there every single inning, and you knew it. Either that or they were really faking it as well. <laughs> and so when the Rangers have had bad years, I always think back to that. And I say, if those guys could do it, you can do it. Yeah. you got to be the voice of hope. You can still have a good time. And, you know. Think of all the horrible places you could be working. There are a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of them. Hey, well, I really appreciate it. I'm going to shake your hand. This is an audio handshake. All right. Uh, Thank you very much, Eric. My pleasure. All right. Thank you.